0: Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is my colleague Joe Healy, and we will be we will not be joined by an interview guest today. We are pausing the campus or the clubhouse conversations series for a week uh, so that we can talk about the ranking of the the top transfer classes that came out at BaseballAmerica.com. Um, Joe did the. Did the work on that one. And so we're going to dive into all things transfer classes. Um, you know, which schools had the best ones this summer. We're going to dive into that today on this edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. If you are not subscribed yet to the podcast, you can find us on all of your favorite podcasting apps: Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you find the podcast, uh, hit that follow or subscribe button. And we come can- at you week throughout the off season. Uh, typically we're doing our, our clubhouse conversation series where we bring on a guest uh, from the college baseball world uh, to, to chat about their team. Uh, we've had Jim Schlossnagel, Dave Van Horn, John Chef. Last week was Wake Forest Ace Rhett Louder. Uh, so we've already had some great guests. You can find those in the archives. We'll have some more great guests uh, in the weeks to come. Uh, this week though, like I said, we're focusing on transfer classes and, uh, Joe, as we do so, uh, we're just coming out of the Labor Day weekend and, uh, you know, school colleges have been back in session for a while now for the most part, but you know, I, I feel like that, that's kind of the cultural moment. Like school is back now because we're past Labor Day.
1: No doubt about that. I, I always thought it was funny when I was a kid. I, I don't, I don't think we started absurdly early my school's growing up, but it, we kind of tended to start around like August. I I always think of August 19th because one of my best friends, uh, all throughout school, his birthday was August 19th and his birthday occasionally would fall on the first day of school. Um, so that's kind of when we started, it was always kind of a weird deal where you'd get, you know, a couple of weeks in and then you'd have a holiday, which, you know,
0: did, uh, did that kid get cake? Like, did you get cupcakes on his birthday?
1: Um, I don't really remember. I, I don't, um, Certainly not at school, um, but uh, I, you know, I don't remember it as at his parties or what it was, but uh, but but not at not at school. Should he have?
0: I, I, I'm thinking more like if it's the first if your birthday falls on the first day of classes, how would how would your teacher handle that? And it sounds like his teachers just ignored it.
1: Yeah, well, to, to be to be to be fair, uh, we became friends. He moved to our area like in fifth or sixth grade so like by the time he was kind of at an age where the teachers were kind of doing less of that kind of stuff if we had been friends in first grade or second grade maybe it's a different story but um, not that your birthday should not be celebrated as you get into your adolescent and teenage years because it should but it's just it's just kind of different so um, but his party was often like the weekend before school started which always has like that I don't know about you but this will not probably not shock uh, certainly not shocked, Teddy and maybe not even our listeners who have been listening to <laughs> listening to me for several years now. But, um, I was always that kid that had a hard time if I was at a part like a, you know, his birthday party or some other kind of event the weekend before school started, I had a hard time having fun because I was just so burdened by the fact that I had to go back to school next week. I just always had a really hard time with that. So, um, probably not the best way for young Joe to have lived his life, but it, it was what it was.
0: These these things happen, I suppose. No Um. doubt, no doubt. I remember
1: one time. I have a very vivid memory. I may have told this story before, and if so, I apologize. Very vivid memory being at the Houston Zoo uh, with my my dad and and my stepmom and my my grandfather and my two younger siblings. It was mostly for them at that point because I was I was in an age where I still liked the zoo, but I was like probably in middle school, so like I'm, I'm kind of past the like prime age for the the zoo. But anyway, I'm there, and I had done the math in my head to figure out where exactly was the midpoint of the summer. And I remember sitting on a bench with my grandfather uh, while my younger siblings were off doing something and we were like eating ice cream or something. And I looked at him and I was like, you know, today is the midpoint of summer. It's all downhill from here. (laughs) And he just kind of was like, well, that's a terrible way to look at it. (laughs) (laughs) But that's, uh, that's
0: what it was. Uh, I'm glad, I'm glad you did that math.
1: (laughs) It's about the only math I was good at,
0: I guess. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into some rankings math. That's some math that we're we're pretty good at here at Baseball America. Um, Transfer class rankings is something that we only have been doing for a couple of years now because it wasn't really relevant prior to the existence of the transfer portal. And now, obviously, very relevant over the last two years. It's the one time transfer exemption uh, has been put into place by the NCAA Uh, this year, LSU. Brings in the number one transfer class. Uh, That's no surprise if you listen to whatever episode it was a few weeks ago when we talked about uh, the most impactful transfers in college baseball as LSU brought in uh, both number one and number two on that list. So, uh, yeah, definitely no surprise that LSU ranks number one, Joe. But, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about Tommy White and Paul Skeens. Obviously, those two are all Americans. That's a big part of the reason why LSU is number one. But, Uh, Do we want to get a little deeper into the class here? Not that you need to go much deeper to find a Thatcher Hurd. He just was injured uh, for a lot of this year. And that's probably why he wasn't an All-American as well. But they do have more than just White and Skeets.
1: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, Hurd, it's easy to forget now, but Hurd was trending towards maybe being the best freshman arm in the country when he when he went down with injury. I mean, his, his numbers at the time he went down are just an absurd, a one Oh six ERA and in 30, in 34 innings. And the stuff was really good and, and all of that. So um, he's obviously, you know, if he's healthy and that's the big question, I mean, all, all signs point towards him being healthy and ready to go, but i um, assuming that's the case, like UCLA could have, you know, that that could be your Friday guy right there. Um, and then it's, it's been kind of funny to me throughout this process that, you know, Christian little almost feels like a, like a throwaway. A little bit in this class um just because or like an extra throwaways probably too, but like just in like an extra in this class but the reality is a couple things one i think christian little we may have talked about this before i think he's kind of hurt by the fact that his perception is hurt by the fact that he came in with such fanfare right like graduated early to go to vanderbilt and you know he started a game in the cws in 2021 and Kind of thought that maybe ne- last year would have been the year he'd he'd pop as a sophomore, and um, while that didn't quite happen, you look at the numbers and they're mostly fine. Like they're not, don't be wrong. He he just he hasn't taken that kind of big leap that I think some people might have seen coming at some point. But he's been fairly effective in his time at Vanderbilt, and the stuff is quite good. Um, You know, touched ninety eight with his fastball last year, and has four different pitches. And now he's getting to work with West Johnson. You know, by all accounts, one of the best pitching coaches in the game. Um, so I mean, he's a guy that ceiling is incredibly high on him. And I think the floor is pretty high too. Like if he's simply the type of reliever he was last year at Vanderbilt, that's a pretty good piece. Like he, he wasn't bad last year. Again, it's just, I think there's just a perception working against him because of what he was as a prep player. And so he, that tells you how good this class is. I mean, they have three of the top five transfers in the country. Christian little's the kind of the fourth big, big piece of that group. Um, but the ceiling, both he has significant floor and ceiling, I think there. And that's, so that that's, I mean, he's the type of guy that um, would be a centerpiece of a lot of other transfer classes uh, around the country, but LSU's is so stout, that that's kind of what he ends up being. And, and the fifth guy here has been nippled who was a late add to the class um, from VCU VCU, obviously made a late coaching change in the summer. And so a bunch of VCU guys, there's a couple of them going to Mississippi state and um, various other places, but um, you know he ends up late in the late in the process. LSU lost a couple of um, pieces in the in the uh, you know uh, transfer pieces. I'm struggling with my words there, but lost a couple of transfer pieces like in the draft and, and what have you. So there were some spots there, and, and Ben Nipple took one. And high on base infielder, 4:30 on base last year, walked more than he struck out. He also can play anywhere on the dirt basically, and I think there's value there for LSU. Whether or not he's a a key offensive piece, like I don't know. I think the value there. For the Tigers is probably more so that he's got the defensive versatility, especially in light of some of the, the defensive questions that LSU is going to have, whether it's what do you do with Tommy White or, you know, um, how solid is Jordan Thompson going to be on the infield? Maybe he's a guy who could you know, be someone to at least fill a part-time role there to give them a little bit more of a steady hand defensively. So that's, that's kind of, I feel like just a true depth piece in this class. But again, a guy who was very successful at a good VCU program last year, and it just speaks to how good this class is overall, that he he really truly does just feel like a depth piece.
0: One of the other things about Christian Little is that he is just 19. He turned 19 like two months ago. Uh, He'll pitch the entire season as a 19 year old. And sometimes I felt like we spent a little too much time talking about Christian Little's age. And sometimes I feel like we don't spend enough time talking about his age when we talk about expectations versus reality and everything like he enrolled early. And a lot of times when you see guys do that anymore, it just feels like they're doing it and they're getting themselves back to the class that like is more age appropriate. He was not doing that. (laughs) He, He straight up like like he was a normal age for his class and then he went to college a year early. And if anything, he might've been on the younger side of, of his class. He'll be, he doesn't turn 20 until next July. Um, so there's the, the point of that is there's still a lot of room for growth for him. And, you know, he'll be the same age as some of the incoming freshmen uh, and he has two years of experience. So I, you know, it, Vanderbilt, players that have transferred from Vanderbilt, even high profile ones have often not gone on to find incredible success elsewhere. Um, we'll see if little bucks that trend. And there's, there are reasons to see why he might be one of those players that does kind of buck that trend. But, uh, you know, for the most part, Vanderbilt has not had like, they have players transfer out. It happens, but it doesn't, it hasn't happened where you look around and you're like, Oh, that guy, why did Vanderbilt like give up on him? You know, it happened, you know, someone like uh, Malloy at Georgia tech, um, you know, he had a, he had a really nice season for Georgia tech, got himself drafted, but it wasn't like, Oh, well, there's an all American that Vanderbilt lost. So I'll be interested to see that one. But I mean, this class is so much so deep uh, despite, you know, it's only five players. We'll talk about classes that are larger than that, but this, uh, I mean, just the, the, the pure talent, the depth piece of it, it's all really there for, for LSU and, uh, an easy decision for you at, at number one this year.
1: No doubt. It then never, there was never a a thought here. Um, there's a pretty big gulf between LSU and Arizona state, which is a very good class, but there were, there was a a gulf there, which is impressive on a number of levels. Not the least of which, by the way, being that LSU didn't need this class, right? I mean, they, they return a pretty good team led by, you know, Dylan Cruz, the, you know, the, the best you know best college prospect in the game um they've returned a good team they're they're bringing in like an incredible traditional recruiting class like they they could have just not taken any transfers and probably would have been in pretty good shape um but, you know so in some ways th- this transfer class is just like there there are teams we will talk about here where you you look at them and go okay they needed this transfer class whether it was because they weren't very good last year and need to kind of um reboot the roster or because this is just a year-to-year strategy this program uses the transfer portal there are some of those unless you didn't need it and they still pulled in a class like this which i think makes it all the more impressive because it's not like they were selling like yes tommy white's going to in paul Skeens and heard and they're going to be a big part of plans right away but it's not like they were one of those teams that could go into the transfer portal and sell like all this playing time and all this opportunity like no you you have to be an all-american type of player in a lot of cases for lsu to be like yes there's all kinds of opportunity for you to come in and be a star right away but that's precisely what they brought in we're for the most part all american level talents
0: so you you said there's a big gap between lsu and arizona state which is number two Uh, tennessee is number three tennessee has maybe more like, like it's it is a smaller class than asu this is one of the challenges of ranking recruiting classes, but even more so in, in transfer classes is that there are all different sizes that these things come in. ASU brought in like, I don't know, a dozen players and Tennessee is is much more carefully selecting a class than that. Uh, so that, that's a challenge obviously, but, but how tight was it between Arizona state and Tennessee and whoever else you consider it too?
1: Yeah. So I think it's, it's LSU golf Arizona State, smaller but still sizable Gulf, and then Tennessee. Now, that's an interesting philosophical debate, I but I think Tennessee is closer to Mississippi State and TCU and Kentucky behind them than they are necessarily Arizona State. And the reason being is just with a class that small, it's just hard. you know. Now, the fact that they have a, a four-person class because they also brought in a starting pitcher, Andrew Lindsey, who didn't pitch last year but was a weekend guy at, at Charlotte a couple of years ago, but the three – star pieces here for Tennessee or Maui Ahuna from Kansas, Griffin Merritt, the American Conference player of the year from Cincinnati, and Zane Denton who's been the middle of the order bat for Alabama the last two years. Those are all guys who were ranked in the top 20 of the top 100 transfers rankings. Um, and it's on the strength of that that they're ranked number 3. But there was still a pretty big gulf there between them and Arizona State at 2 because it's it's just there is risk with a class that small. Like, I, I don't have any doubts about Maui Ahuna, and I really don't have any doubts about any of the three, but because they're all ranked in the top 20. But if one of those guys misses and just isn't the same type of player or injuries that inevitably happen, um, happen to this group of players, like that class is going to fall apart a little bit because it's just so small, right? Arizona State just kind of shopped the whole store. It's kind of the difference between like, you know, you go going shopping it at, at Kroger and what you kind of get for, for your money versus going it to Whole Foods and getting what you get for your money, right? Like Arizona State went to the grocery store and shopped the entire thing. Like they've got and the team, this is this is a team we talked about. Like that just wasn't very good last year. And so they knew they needed a little bit of a reboot. And and boy, are they getting one. I mean, it's it reminds me, and you know, and they, they certainly hope it gets the same kind of result, but it reminds me a little bit of A&M's recruiting class last year, where it was just like they're, they're going after players who are going to impact the next season's team. Um, you know, guy, a guy like Luke Keeskull or who's going to be a, a guy at the top of the order and start at shortstop more than likely. And and Ross Dunn who could be the Friday night guy right away from Florida state. And the, then they're also going to go and get Nick McClain who was a highly touted recruit at UCLA last year and didn't play because of injury or Drake Varnado from Arkansas, who again, highly touted recruit who just didn't get a lot of time last year with the Razorbacks. And those are more pieces for yes, if they're great in 2023, that's what they're shooting for. But also those guys are going to be around for 2024. And so those are kind of building pieces. And and AM did some of that too, right? So again, not predicting they have the same level of success with it, but they are trying to do a similar thing, which is like, let's let's use this to give us a better team immediately and also just a better program moving forward. And so the size of the ASU class just made it to where I I couldn't put Tennessee ahead, even though on the aggregate you know, Tennessee has, um, nearly as good a class when you consider the star power. And and that kind of, as we move forward in this conversation, that's something to think about as a, as a listener here is that I tended to, yes, there are some big classes ranked in the top 10. I can't ignore the size of a class like Arizona state or Kentucky, uh, or Mississippi state, but you want that star power in your class, right? If 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 two of the three of Ahuna Merit or didn't end up being all Americans or just all SEC type players, like you you want that versus a class of twelve people having produced you know four or five regulars and one or two guys who are cornerstone pieces, like you you just want the star. You'll take the star power over the depth any day of the week, and so I tended to lean a little bit more on high end in the transfer classes. Um. But I can't ignore the volume. And in this case, the difference in the volume was just too great for me, especially when you consider that, oh, by the way, you know, Arizona State has two top 10 guys, too. And and Keeskill and Ross Dunn were both top 10 transfers. So it's not like they don't have the quality there either, right? So you combine that with the depth, and that's what ends up putting it over Tennessee. The debates for me started to get really interesting when you talk Mississippi State at four, TCU at five, you know, Kentucky at six. That was a pretty tight cluster there. Because it's, it really is trying to predict those are three pretty big classes and it's just trying to predict which of these guys ends up being end up being cornerstones for the respective teams, uh, all of whom are in major conferences and, and who have, you know, Omaha type um, aspirations and in Kentucky's case, just trying to get back to the postseason. Uh, which of these guys in these classes are going to be stars and which of these guys are going to be depth pieces. And that's kind of tough. That's kind of ultimately what you're trying to do to find differences in them.
0: One of the things that doing the re-ranking of recruiting classes, once the players have matriculated through college, uh, once that one one of the things that exercise has taught me is just how few difference makers like actually tend to come in in any one class. Like most teams are bringing in, at least a dozen players new players every year like if you have a roster of 35 like some some attrition uh plus some seniors depending on like what level of program we're talking about there's also some draft and all of that means that you you're bringing in 10 to 15 players every year some schools bring in more whatever but average probably 10 to 15. Even the best schools, like when I go through and I list like, all right, so here are the all Americans. And then here are the other players from this class that really like, you know, were regulars, made a real impact on this program. Like once you get outside the top, like half dozen or so, maybe even top 10 classes, the rest of that top 25, like you're looking at like three to five players basically that have been like real true impact types. And so Like that, that's why when Joe does the transfer rankings, when I do the recruiting rankings that we're, we're looking at like, okay, who has the star power because getting those pieces like having a bigger class having more volume means you have more bites at the apple to find a star. But if you have the bigger deal guys coming in, like that, that's just, that is like a natural guiding light because those players are as rare as they are. Yeah, I think
1: that's exactly right. It's it's easy to focus on kind of the depth, but but really you're looking at you know you're you're trying to get in in a big class whether it's recruiting or transfer you're trying to get w- one superstar, a couple guys you could call stars, and then if you get a couple of productive players out of the rest, you're doing you're doing pretty well. And um, you know I think one of the things that's interesting about this group, by the way, just as I kind of like wrap up my thoughts on the the high end of this list is. You see, first of all, the SEC prominence. And when people ask, like, you know, who's benefiting from the transfer portal, it's clear the SEC has has cleaned up in this regard. Um, you see teams that just kind of the transfer portal is what they do, right? It's only been a couple of years, but I think we can say confidently that the transfer portal is just going to be part of Kentucky's strategy moving forward. And I talked to Nick Mingione about that a little bit for the piece I wrote about what it's like to to work in the transfer portal for coaches this this summer. And, you know, he he was he's pretty open about like transfer portals opportunity, you know, um, you know, opportunity for players, opportunity for programs like there's just opportunity there. So clearly they see value there. But then outside of that, you see and you see Arkansas is in the top 10 and, and they don't take as big the, the big classes. All oh, this one's a little bit bigger than the ones they've taken in past years. Their classes aren't as big, but they tend to do a very good job of like, OK, where do we have holes? And then who can we put in those holes immediately? They tend to be pretty good at finding fit. So they're there. But then there's a couple of teams that really weren't necessarily this kind of transfer portal heavy in the past that I think you can look at and understand they're trying to pull off some some reboots. And one of them is Mississippi State at, at number four, like just a team that really struggled last year. We've talked about that quite a bit. And so... They were a team that has dabbled in the portal, right? Like they, they've had some nice depth pieces through the portal, but they they went a little bit harder in the transfer portal than they have in the past. And, and I think tried to pull out some more foundational guys uh, for the 2023 team. And the other one was South Carolina. And South Carolina had a ranked transfer class last year, but it, it wasn't like this. It was, you know, a small handful of guys. And, and that that worked in some cases and didn't work in others. Um, But this, this is more of a whole hog situation, although I guess whole hog would describe more Arkansas, but this is definitely like a shopping, the whole store situation for South Carolina. They, they were looking for a little bit, everything in the transfer portal. And they, they seem to mostly have found it (laughs) because it is a pretty, pretty diverse group of guys who do different things and have different skills and and play different positions. But it, it's always interesting, especially at the top of these transfer classes, uh, transfer rankings to think about the motivations behind why a team went the way they did in transfers. And I think that's there's some commonality there with some of what you see in the top 10 are, are teams that either A, it's just a part of their larger recruiting strategy or B, knew that, hey, if we're gonna be better in 2023, like we need to hit the reset button pretty hard and the transfer portal is a way to do it.
0: All right, we're gonna take a break here and we'll be back with uh, some more transfer talk here in a second. All right, Joe, I wanna talk a little bit more about some of these bigger classes. Um, So, I mean, we're talking ASU, we're talking Mississippi State, we're talking South Carolina. Uh, I don't really wanna talk A&M. They don't really fit the broader question here. I guess we can also talk Kentucky. These are teams that are all trying to reset. They missed the tournament last year. Um, You can throw Missouri in. Anyone else that I haven't mentioned, bigger class, Team that yeah. missed the tournament last year, who was actually going to be successful at it? We saw what Auburn and AM did last year, missed the tournament, brought in some key transfers, ended the year in Omaha. I'm not asking you to pick which one of these teams is going to Omaha, but which one of these teams is going to be much better than anyone realizes right now or is expecting just based on what you would traditionally look at in terms of, well, they weren't very good last year, so like, how much of an improvement are they going to make this year?
1: So which, which teams did you give me there to choose from, just to make sure I don't take someone off the board?
0: Uh, Hale State, South Carolina, Arizona mm-hmm. State, Kentucky, mm-hmm. if you're into Missouri. Uh, really, anyone that missed the tournament last year and has a larger class is is what I'm looking at here. So, like, not an AM, Like, they have yeah, a yeah, bigger yeah. class, but, like, they're going to be good next year. We know that.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's that's fair. Um. So I kind of, like, from a... So let me, I guess also though, if
0: somebody has a bespoke class that is going to change the fortunes of the program, like I'm into hearing about that too. I just find that to be less likely.
1: Yeah, for sure. Like, so I actually really like just, this is not an option you gave me, but let me throw a couple of just other little side things out here. I really like TCU's class, not a, a team that did a lot of this last year and they even lost the best piece of it. Cade Morris ended up staying at Nevada and he could have been, you know, he could have been the ace of the staff, but I really like Austin Davis as a defensive player, good on base guy, Trey Richardson, athletic middle infielder, Hunter Hodges, maybe the nastiest reliever on the Cape this past summer, Sam Stoutenborough, veteran starter, Ryan Vander High, whose stuff is better than his numbers at Kansas, like, it's, it's a pretty good class. So, like, that doesn't quite qualify, but, like, I just wanted to kind of shout out that, like, hey, this is a, a new entrant into kind of this this space. I will also give a shout out here to Arizona State. They're not the answer to the question because I don't know how much better they're going to be. I will just say that the on-ramp to being improved is a little bit easier in the Pac-12. So if you told me Arizona State is, you know, they were a team that finished eight in the Pac-12 last year. If you told me that they're third or fourth in the Pac-12 and a solid regional team, like I would, I would 100% buy that, but I'm not, I'm going to throw them out because I don't think that's quite the right way to look at that. So, to answer your question more honestly, I think Mississippi State is the team to look at here. Um, because i I think when you look at transfers, I think it's important when you' when you're trying to gauge impact, I think it's important to look at the profile of what we know has been successful um when it comes to transfers. And we don't have a lot of data here, so this we could reevaluate this in two to three years and and get a completely different answer. But there is a pretty long track record at this point of if a player is a mid-major player or just a smaller, you know, because they have a guy, Landon Gartman from Memphis, right? It's not really a mid-major, the American Athletic Conference, but like, you know what I mean, a smaller program. If they put up numbers there and they are good enough athletically and skill-wise that the coaches at an SEC program or Big 12 or ACC, whatever you want to throw in there, goes that guy can play in our league bet I, I i'm confident betting on that guy so when you look at landon gartman who held opponents to a 175 average last year at memphis and had a 356 era like if they think he can pitch in the sec and he put up numbers last year as a freshman mind you in a pretty good conference that's a guy you, it seems like you should you should bet on and connor husak at shortstop for the vcu again a regional team um you know when he showed like a, a you know a dynamism with some power and some speed if they think he's athletic enough to play in the SEC, okay. Like Colton Ledbetter of Sanford is coming off of a massive summer. And it feels like maybe they got a real bargain with him. Um he put up numbers at Sanford, not something to share a kind of numbers, but good numbers at Sanford last year. Again, some power, some speed, and then had a really good summer and it feels like okay, he might actually be a guy who's just super ready to be an impact piece in the SEC. Um, Amani Larry from new Orleans, again, dynamic middle infielder. Like he reminds me a little more of like, like a Scotty Dubral type of player. Maybe, um, maybe more of a a role player as opposed to middle of the order, top of the order kind of guy, but long story short, their class feels most like the types of guys that we've seen time and time again, have success in, um, in a transfer situation some of these other classes have a little more prospecting. And I don't mean prospecting in terms of like MLB draft, although that, I guess that's kind of also true. But, you know, you look at Kentucky's class and they do have some proof here. Kendall Yule is a, a long track record at Eastern Kentucky. Ryan Waldschmidt, I think is actually probably like a, a, pros, a guy who's going to be known in the prospect world. He probably already is, but but they they're also, they've got guys like, you know, that are a little more the betting on potential, like Zach Heiss from Missouri, who's got good stuff, but didn't really necessarily put up numbers at Missouri. Um, you know, uh, Jackson Gray, who had a bad year at Western Kentucky last year, but was good the year before. So which, which version of him are you getting or Ryder Giles who can play a good defensive shortstop and can kind of pitch, but like, he was never a star at ECU. Um, so with their class, like there's a little bit more of like projecting and maybe they're just fitting more roles and and that's, that's all valid, but there is some betting on some potential there. And it's the same way with South Carolina, right? Like they're bringing in Gavin Cassis, who is a highly regarded guy going to Vanderbilt who just didn't get much chance to prove himself at Vanderbilt or Roman Kimball from Notre Dame who has good stuff and had just kind of so-so numbers last year. Um, or Clemson guys like Dylan Brewer or Jonathan French, who um have potential but didn't really necessarily show it at Clemson. And so they're betting on kind of unlocking some guys. And I just don't think there's that level of uncertainty when you look at Mississippi State's class. We we've seen guys with those types of profile have success and it's it's frankly part of the reason why like yes, they just have more players ranked in the top 100 than any other uh any other program and that's the reason they're ranked 4 here, but also there is just a more I have a higher level of comfort with the profiles of the types of players they're bringing in from the transfer portal i have a higher level of confidence that that's actually going to lead to the kind of reboot they're looking for on top of the fact that they continue to recruit well and all that
0: stuff is still also true one more question for me florida is number 10 <laughs> they have hurston waldrop that's the best pitcher in the portal um they have two other players which is she coffer and dale thomas who are more. Like, especially offer kind of a depth piece. Dale Thomas will probably play some sort of role. Hard to know precisely. Class is based a lot around having Hurston Waldrop, though. How good does Hurston Waldrop have to be for you to feel like you were wrong to rank them ten?
1: How good does he have to be that they should have been higher is what you're saying? Correct. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if he's... I mean, frankly the reason they're not higher is just, I would have liked to have seen more than three players here. Right. I mean, like they had Colby Thomas dynamic outfielder from Mercer and, and he got drafted and signed. Um, you know, if they have him, we're probably looking at a class more similar to Tennessee. It's, it's probably closer to five, six, maybe even, maybe even higher. Um, yeah. So I, they're, they one that was really, really tough. I had the same questions I had about, about Tennessee, frankly. Um, but yeah, if he's, I mean, if he's all SEC good, like I'm going to feel like, yeah, they should have been, it's, you know, and that's frankly right in the, you know, right in the wheelhouse of what Hurston Waldrip could be. If he's all SEC challenging to be all American, it's, it's going to feel like, yeah, they should have been quite a bit higher, which is, you know, this is some of the risk you take ranking this stuff is that you do have to balance, you know, but then again, like it's the same argument for Tennessee, if he's just kind of, okay, like 10 going to seem kind of rich for them. Right. Because then Dale Thomas is like a nice player and Richie Cicco is maybe a fourth outfielder um, or something, uh, you know, spot starter, maybe he comes into more playing time than that. But, you know, if Hurston Waldrop is just kind of what Brandon Sprout was last year, which is very good, then it's like, okay, maybe they, maybe 10 was, was correct. Or maybe he was even a little bit high. So, um, but his potential is certainly much greater than that. You know, he and Brandon Sprout are, you know, Best one-two punch in the SEC, perhaps. Like that's, you know, there's a a high level of probability that it looks like, just on the strength of him alone, should have been quite a bit higher. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, entirely possible that that was the hardest uh, ranking that you had to deal with. Here is uh, is how to deal with Florida. Uh, the full twenty or twenty-five, however many classes. <laughs> the full twenty-five is available over at BaseballAmerica.com. Make sure to uh, to check it out there, Joe. Did you have any any parting thoughts? Any teams that just missed that you wanted to shout out?
1: Yeah, it's a good idea to, to shout out some of the just misses because I, you know, it, one thing that I noticed about this is this was a lot harder this year. Like last year, trying to get to twenty-five, I didn't have to work that hard to get to twenty-five, but there were definitely some classes at the back of the 25 that I was just like, eh, you know, um, so shout out Notre Dame, uh, and Clemson who had smaller classes, but both had two players ranked in the top 100. They were both in in the mix. Long Beach state has an interesting class and they, they lost some guys, right? Jawan Watts, Watts Brown, most notably, but they bring in an interesting class of like some proven guys from some, from lower levels. And, um, That was kind of an interesting class to me. Rutgers brought an interesting class and those Northeastern teams, because UConn also has an interesting class. Those are kind of tough because those schools are kind of taking advantage of the fact that lower division baseball is a big deal in Northeast. Like D3 baseball is a a big deal in Northeast. And they get a lot of players that are super proven from those levels. And you just don't quite know what to do with that. So uh, that is an interesting Dynamic there. So th- those were teams that were kind of in the mix. And I think at the back of this, you start to really see volume in some ways kind of rules the day at the back. You do see smaller classes, shout out Oregon, kind of at, at the back, but you do start to see more volume plays, uh, most notably with Kansas at 25. And well, you want to talk about just completely starting over from a roster standpoint, and it makes sense. They they weren't good last year, and they lost most of their best players into the transfer portal before Dan Fitzgerald was even hired at KU. Um, so they they needed it and they're getting it. And boy, will that be interesting to watch play out uh, next season? Because it is, you talk about classes that are long on projection and short on proven performance. I mean, this is one of them where it's it's a lot of guys dropping down from Texas and Texas Tech and Tennessee and LSU and just hoping that a certain number of them are um, you know ready for roles that they weren't going to get in their previous program. So You do start to see more numbers at the back of this thing because, you know, you start to run short on the the high end guys as as you get here. So that's where really, you know, there's probably somebody from, you know, 18 to 25 that is going to have a superstar pop, you know, a sunny to type thing um, that is going to look like it was ranked entirely too low. And there's going to be one or more of these massive, massive classes here that are just not going to have much impact at all and it's just going to be kind of just filler and then it's going to be a, a class that that probably shouldn't have been ranked and that's just kind of the that's true of recruiting classes as well and that's just kind of the way this uh this plays out
0: yeah my recruiting rankings are perfect <laughs> <laughs> um that you mentioned about the yukon and rutgers taking advantage of smaller uh lo- lower levels of, of baseball in, in the northeast and that made me think of Matt Donlin, who was the catcher for UConn this year, uh, who transferred from Stonehill, which I believe is now a division one school. They're they're the ones that came up right, uh, but was a division two school when he was there. And um, you know, he turns out to be, you know, their starting catcher on a super regional team and gets a non-drafted free agent contract with the Red Sox. I mean, so like there are good players to be found there, and um Yukon has proven adept at that over the years. So uh, it's hard for us to know which players of that are are good, but if UConn's finding them, it's generally I, I I feel good about their uh, their talent evaluation of of those kinds of players. So definitely a class to uh to watch because they've they've been good in the portal before. Like if you go and you look at their team this year, it wasn't just Donlin. Um You know Justin Willis came in as a transfer. They they had they have been good at at this, and um, you know for a program. Like them, that, that's, uh, that's been a real advantage for for what they've they've been able to do over the last several years. All right, that's going to do it for us today here on the Baseball America College podcast. Again, if you want to see the full top 25 uh, of the best transfer classes in the country, that's at BaseballAmerica.com. Our traditional recruiting rankings are coming still probably about a week away as, as you listen to this. Uh, I have to finish up my uh, my 25. Um, But you can find all of that over at BaseballAmerica.com. So even though it's the offseason, still plenty to read. uh, If you're into the college baseball and if you're into the pro side, as the minor league season wraps up, there's plenty to read about that as well. You can follow Joe and me on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy B.A. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. Your favorite podcasting app. You can find the Baseball America podcast and hit that subscribe or follow button. And we will continue coming uh, to you once a week throughout the off season. And next week we'll get back into our clubhouse conversation series. I think um, Joe and I haven't planned out that far. It should be a return, unless unless we end up talking recruiting rankings. We'll find out. So make sure you're subscribed, uh, and you can find the full archives of the the clubhouse conversation. Uh, series on your, your favorite podcasting app as well. Until next week, thanks for listening. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you then.